almost there. On the morning of June the 10th, 1942, six armed men in three rubber dinghies filled with explosives paddled ashore to a small beach near Malia Crete. Their mission, to destroy as many planes as possible at the Luftwaffe Air Base at Heraklion. The reason I joined the SBS was to take the fight to the enemy, and that's exactly what these guys are doing. This was classic Special Forces stuff, a small waterborne incision operation deep behind enemy lines who were going to cause maximum chaos and disruption to the German war machine. But already, the operation wasn't going to plan. They had landed in the wrong location, and the occupied island was not only crawling with German soldiers, but also Nazi spies, the Allies called Quislings. Vidkun Quisling, the Norwegian politician who collaborated with the Germans, is synonymous with the word traitor. And in the Second World War, those who cooperated with the Nazi occupiers became widely known as Quislings. This is the remarkable true story of the SAS's first seaborne operation. By the end, the seven heroes were forced to play a deadly game of cat and mouse as the Nazis and traitors tried to capture the fleeing SAS operatives. Sadly, not all of them would survive. They were the hitmen of Heraklion. I'm Bruce Crompton, history lover, military antique collector, and ex-paratrooper. In Amazing War Stories, you're going to hear about incredible actions, all taken from records housed in museum collections. It's only by unearthing these wonderful tales that I hope to support these important institutions, honour the heroes that sacrificed so much and help preserve their legacies for future generations. At 4.30pm on the 11th of May 1942, it was another beautiful day on the Mediterranean Sea. But the clear conditions also made them deadly. A British destroyer flotilla led by HMS Jackal had been on a mission to intercept an Italian convoy. However, having been spotted a day earlier by a small enemy reconnaissance plane, the operation had to be aborted. Now they were returning back to Alexandria, tail between their legs. The Jackal's captain, Commander Christopher Jellicoe, a distant relation to the late Lord Jellicoe, former Admiral of the fleet, was on the bridge staring intently through his binoculars. Something had to be done about these bloody planes, he thought. The waters in the Mediterranean were particularly dangerous, and the Germans and Italians were playing havoc with the Allied supply routes. If food, armaments and fuel couldn't get through to key positions, especially Malta, then the war in the Middle East would be lost. But the biggest threat to the Royal Navy didn't come from the deadly submarines or enemy destroyers. It actually came from the skies. Just then, a cry came from a lookout. Enemy plane, 
all eyes in the bridge turned skyward. The alarm sounded and almost immediately, HMS Jackal's anti-aircraft gun opened up. There was a squadron of Junkers 88, one of the most feared planes in the Luftwaffe, heading straight for them. Evading the flat, the Junkers began their bombing run. On board one of the planes, its captain, Houtman Helbig, ordered the bomb bay doors open. These ships were sitting ducks, he thought. Coming in steeply, the Junkers of Ladies Father 1, the elite air unit based in Heraklion, released their deadly cargoes. The bombs whistled through the air, with one striking HMS Jackal amidships. The explosion was deafening to all on board, and the destroyer immediately started taking on water. Another ship in the convoy, HMS Lively, took three direct hits and quickly started to sink. With acrid smoke pouring into the sky and fire on the vessels, Commander Jellicoe wondered whether any of them would make it back to port alive. Dr Chris Mann is the Deputy Head of the Department of War Studies at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. In mid-1942, the strategic picture for the Allies was grim. In North Africa, Rommel and his German-Italian army was on the verge of capturing the vital port of Tobruk. In the Mediterranean, the strategic island of Malta was in vital need of supply. Indeed, in June, a relief convoy was forced to turn back after coming under sustained pressure from the Luftwaffe. Many of these air attacks were launched from German air bases in Crete, which also acted as an important logistics hub for Rommel's operations in Libya. General Claude Auchinleck, Commander-in-Chief, was under considerable political pressure from Winston Churchill in these difficult times. Thus, he was open to ideas that provided some relief from his considerable difficulties. Back on dry land in Alexandria, Egypt, another Jellico was having a slightly easier time of it. This man, a captain in the army, who was in fact the son of Lord Jellico, was having a drink with a tall Scotsman in a bar of a hotel called The Shepherd. He was blissfully unaware of the difficulties one of his distant relatives was currently facing just over a hundred miles away at sea. However, in a curious twist of coincidence, both their predicaments were deeply entwined. The tanned 23-year-old army officer had bucked the family trend by not joining the Royal Navy. He had joined the Scots Guards instead, and it was a decision which would change his life forever. The imposing Scotsman he was talking to was David Stirling the six-foot-five-inch commanding officer of the SAS. Sterling, an ex-guardsman himself, was trying to persuade the young Scots Guards lieutenant to join him in L Detachment Special Air Service Brigade as second-in-command. Jellicoe, who had already had a stint as a commando, leapt at the chance. Little did he realise that one month later, he would be involved in the SAS's first seaborne action, Operation Alberman. Remember, everything you are about to hear is true, 
no matter how extraordinary it sounds. Although I'm an ex-para, I do have a particular respect for the Guards. There are five regiments, the Grenadiers, the Coldstreams, Scots, Irish and Welsh Guards, and they are amongst the oldest regiments in the British Army, and have always been considered by many as elite foot soldiers. As a result, over the years they have turned out some of the toughest and most extraordinary men and their list of accomplishments is legendary. Each regiment has a museum in their respective countries, but one of my favourite places to go is their combined museum, located in Wellington Barracks in London. Andrew Wallace is the curator, and he's understandably proud of their tradition. George Jellicoe was a very embodiment of a guards officer. Resourceful, humorous, a fantastic leader, and extremely brave. It's interesting to note that in October 1939, just at the outbreak of war, he was already at Sandhurst training to become an officer in the Coldstream Guards. Now that in itself was a brave move. His father, Admiral John Jellicoe, who commanded the British fleet at the Battle of Jutland in 1916, one would have thought that he would have gone into the Navy, but George Jellicoe, being his own man, said, no, I don't want to do that which is why he decided to join the army and in specific the Coldstream Guards. He was commissioned on the 23rd of March 1940 into the Coldstream and about a year later he was away with number eight guards commando sailing off to the Middle East and in doing so that exposed him to meet up with a whole bunch of other interesting guards officers in the shape of David Sterling, who was Scots Guards, Jock Lewis from the Welsh Guards, Pat Riley from the Coldstream. Between them, they came together to form what we now know as the Special Air Service. The Raid on Creek, codenamed Operation Albumum, would see the SBS assault three German air bases, Malin, Casterly and Timbaki. A fourth attack run by the French SAS with Captain Jellicoe would strike Passos Airfield in Heraklion. Sterling had long been impressed by the special boat service and wanted to see what he could learn from their tactics in the field of waterborne assaults. Until now, the SAS had mainly relied on the vehicles of the Long Range Desert Group to hit air bases in Libya, coupled with a few largely unsuccessful parachute jumps behind enemy lines. Here was a chance, Sterling thought, to show Allied command that the SAS could excel at sea too. So pulling a few strings, he managed to get the Heraklion raid taken off the SBS and given to his men instead. Jason Fox is an ex-Royal Marine commando and former Special Forces operator in the SBS. There is still rivalry between the SAS and the SBS. They work together but there is still that healthy competition. The SBS was originally called the Special Boat Section and was attached to Lay Force, a special commando unit in the Middle East. In those days, there wasn't really much distinction between the men of the Special Forces detachments. The SAS, SBS, Lay Force, Small Scale Raiding Force, they're all one and the same really, 
with very marginal specialisations. The SBS wouldn't have taken kindly to losing a target, but Sterling was on the rise, and ultimately he wanted to take them under his command, or have them totally integrated into his force. The plan called for Jellicoe to join a small detachment of three French paratroopers who, having escaped with the British at Dunkirk, were now attached to Sterling's SAS in Alexandria. This unit, along with a Greek army officer, were to infiltrate the enemy-held island of Crete and take out the German airfield at Heraklion. The same airfield, in fact, that the Junker 88 planes had left to bomb the convoy from. Jellicoe was the perfect person, thought Sterling. He was a guardsman, an ex-commando, spoke fluent French and, of course, had big connections in the Navy and British royalty. But the raid against the Luftwaffe airbase was going to be particularly challenging, especially because the SBS attacks were scheduled to happen a week before Jellicoe landed. The Germans would be on high alert and on the lookout for more infiltrators. So Sterling had his work cut out. He had just under a month to get Jellicoe fit and ready for one of the most difficult and dangerous operations the SAS had attempted so far. On the 10th of June 1942, the Greek submarine HMS Triton surfaced once again just off the island of Crete. It had arrived earlier in the day, but had to immediately dive to avoid detection from a passing German convoy. Now the coast was clear and under the cover of darkness, six men clambered off the submarine into two inflatable dinghies, ironically captured from the Germans, whilst a third was crammed full of explosives and weapons. They were glad to get off the sub, they had spent three days sailing from Alexandria in a cramped torpedo room, which was especially arduous for outdoorsmen that craved space and action. In the first dinghy was Jellicoe, known to his friends as Curly, a French SAS trooper called Jacques Mahout, and a Cretan lieutenant called Costas Patrakis, whose nickname was simply Costi. Mahout, a heavy smoker, would often be seen puffing on a Gaulois cigarette. On the other dinghy was the leader of the operation, Major Georges Berger. The Frenchman was small, tough and stocky and had a wicked sense of humour. His men respected his energy, bravery and enthusiasm. And he'd already won British Military Cross before he joined the SAS. The remaining two troopers in his craft were French corporals Pierre de Ostic and Jack Seabard. The Ostic was known as the Kid. He had joined the Free French Army when he was 16 by lying about his age. Now he was in the SAS, aged 18, and Berger felt a direct responsibility for him. Corporal Seabard needed no such supervision, but he's silent and seemingly taciturn disposition was viewed by some as sullen, and Jellicoe didn't really warm to him. The feeling, it has to be said, was mutual. You know, I was part of a squadron 
and it's made up of 30 to 40 guys and you do have some of your closest mates ever within that group but there are also people you don't get on with there's people that you wouldn't go out for a beer with you don't have to like each other but you do have to respect each other even if you dislike the person next to you you have to be able to trust them because quite frankly they've got your life in their hands the paddle to dry land was tough going in the darkness especially as they were towing the third heavy dinghy. Unfortunately, they had been deployed three miles offshore, two miles further than planned, and there was a horrendous cross-current to contend with, which made staying on target almost impossible. Once they reached terra firma, they realised they had drifted roughly 18 miles down the coast to Malia. The beach they were supposed to land at was only a mile or so from the target airfield. Now they found themselves nearly 25 miles away. They unloaded their equipment from the boats and then Jellico and Matt Hu filled them with stones and sank them out at sea. When they returned, the others had split the 80 Lewis bombs equally between them. But Seabard argued that they had too much to carry over such a long distance. As well as the bombs, they each had two grenades, a water canteen, ammunition, a machine gun, cold pistol, and basic rations. Berger ignored Seabard, and loaded up like pack horses, they set off with Costi dressed as a civilian taking the lead. Within the hour, they saw some Cretan civilians walking down the path toward them. Jellico and his men had been warned about the danger of meeting local informers known as Quislins, so they had a ruse. Jellico could speak passable German, so he greeted any civilians in the language of the occupying force. When you're on an operation behind enemy lines, you have to be disciplined with regard to your contact with civilians because even if they are friendly, people cannot help but talk. They could be the nicest little old lady who's given you food, given you shelter, but in the end, she cannot help but talk. And that could compromise the entire operation. Unfortunately, Jellico's trick didn't work at all. Almost immediately, the locals realised they were Allied commandos. I guess carrying large amounts of weaponry, coupled with a man in civilian clothing, was too much for even the persuasive captain to pull off. Bidding the civilians farewell, the team continued the march through the night over rocky and barren ground. A couple of the Frenchmen dropped some of their loads, as Seabar predicted. It was just too much to carry. However, Jellico and Berger continued with theirs. They needed as many Lewis bombs as possible. Berger kept up a brutal pace. He knew the longer they were out in the open, the greater the chance they would be caught. Perhaps they had already met a Quisling. As dawn broke, they had been on the move for over six hours. Finding a cave, the men gratefully slumped into it. They were still at least 10 miles away from their objective, but they needed a break and couldn't risk moving in broad daylight. The day's rest was exactly what the men needed, although they got through their entire supply of rations and almost all their water. The setting of the sun signalled that they were to move again. 
and the men set off towards their final objective, Heraklion Airfield. It was now the 13th of June. The men had been holed up in a cave on a hillside overlooking the German airbase. They were massively behind schedule, and although they had arrived on the 12th, despite several wreckies, they couldn't find a suitable route into the airfield. German security was high, with continuous patrols around the base. It seemed the SBS attacks of the previous week had really stirred up the hornet's nest, and now they weren't taking any chances. Their delay in the attack also had huge consequences for the men. They'd run out of supplies and now had to take necessary, and in Berger's eyes, unpleasant risks. The night before had seen Mahu and Seabar approach the locals for food and water. They were successful, but they were once again worried about Quislins. If word got out they were near an airfield, it would be all over for them. Food and drink is vital for a soldier. Whenever we were away, you'd be on operations and just before you go out the door, you literally ram everything down your throat. It is like the last supper. To be honest, your life can depend on it. You don't know when you're behind enemy lines, when your next meal is going to be. Sometimes you will find yourself in really sticky situations and you've got to take those calculated risks. You have to eat, you've got to drink water, and if you don't, then you're as good as dead anyway. Jellicoe and Berger knew they had to attack that evening, and thankfully they thought they'd found a way in. The airfield was filled with planes. They'd counted over 60 German aircraft, which included several squadrons of Junker 88 bombers. The twin-engine Junkers was the perfect multi-purpose aircraft, not only deployed as a heavy fighter, but also as a dive bomber and a night fighter. It was a truly devastating weapon in the German arsenal. The men were eager to get at them. They set off as soon as darkness fell, looping around the southwest corner of the airfield, where the largest concentration of park bombers were located. Clambering over the rocky ground, they made their way to the wire fence and began cutting. Then, at that moment, disaster struck. A German patrol appeared out of nowhere. Jellicoe thought it might pass them by, but a beam of torchlight caught Mahu as he lay on the ground near the fence. One of the Germans cried out and ran over. The men lay stock still. The SAS captain ran through the options in his head. He could throw a grenade at the patrol, but then the operation would be over and they would probably have to make a fighting retreat to the coast. Option two was to surrender, but again, this didn't seem like a very palatable outcome, especially if the Gestapo got their hands on them. The guard stopped within a foot of Jellicoe's head. The SAS officer had his eyes closed and held his breath. Had he been spotted too? Then he heard an extraordinary noise, snoring. It was an act of genius. Matu was pretending to be asleep and was making the most ridiculous snoring sounds. 
Incredibly, the German guard fell for it, shouting back to the others that it was just a drunken Cretan farmer. After a quick tap with his boot to make sure the man was asleep, the German rejoined his colleagues. The patrol moved on, laughing to themselves as they mocked the locals. It doesn't surprise me that Mahout's tactic totally worked because when you join the special forces, you are encouraged. In fact, it's second nature to think outside the box. It's very often the unexpected that can save your life. As the German patrol moved off, the men quickly returned to business. Cutting through the wire, they moved silently onto the airfield. But just as they started to move towards the park planes, all hell broke loose. A warning klaxon went off and Germans started running around the base. The raiders' first thought must have been that they surely had been discovered. However, the truth was slightly more terrifying. An RAF Blenheim bomber had come to try and destroy the airfield, a pre-planned event that should the base have not been obliterated on the first night by the SAS, then the RAF would have a go. As Jellico and the team had no way of contacting HQ to inform them of the delay, command had thought that their mission had failed. The six soldiers ran to take shelter in a small building by the edge of the runway as the Blenheim's bombs started to rain down on the airfield. Taking a moment to compose themselves, the men looked around and discovered to their horror they had probably chosen the worst place to hide in the event of an air attack. They were in the German bomb store. Hello, I hope you're enjoying this episode of Amazing War Stories. I'm Ed Sayer, the co-founder and producer of the show, and I just wanted to tell you about our interactive military museum finder on AmazingWarStories.com. If you want to plan your next great day out, or you're thinking of visiting our fair isle, then head over to our finder, enter your postcode, and discover where the nearest military museum is to you. There are over 250 military museums all around Britain and they're each stacked with their own amazing war stories along with housing some incredible artefacts. These institutions need your support. Without people visiting them, their doors will close forever. So to find out where your nearest museum is, please click the link on our show notes or visit our website. AmazingWarStories.com, the home of military heroes. With the last of the Blenheim's bombs having hit their targets and luckily missing the ordnance store, the men came out of hiding and quickly returned to work. With so much confusion happening, they were able to plant Lewis bombs on 16 Junkers 88 planes. Mahou had to sit on Seymour's shoulders to reach the aircraft's wings, while Leostic, known as the Kid, fed them explosives. Let's go, Harry. Berger and Jellico kept them covered, but they were undisturbed as the Germans rushed around trying to deal with the damage that had happened from the RAF raid. Once the Junkers had been taken care of, 
Jellicoe grabbed a bunch of explosives. There were so many targets of opportunity, he wanted to cause as much destruction as possible. As the French started on another group of planes, Curly Jellicoe found crate after crate of engine parts in a hangar. Setting the timers on the Lewis bombs, he moved quickly, throwing a couple into some of the nearby trucks for good measure. In the Special Forces, you're always looking for new ways of defeating the enemy, and you're encouraged to come up with new methods to employ explosives. The Lewis bomb was invented by Jock Lewis, one of the original SAS soldiers. It was designed specifically to destroy aircraft and was set off by using pencil charges. The only problem was that the pencil charges were notoriously unreliable and would often go off at different times than what they were set to. Regrouping, Berger discussed the best options to exfil the base. There was so much chaos that the men decided to walk out the front gate with the other German soldiers that were evacuating. It was the shortest route back to the cave and the rest of their kit. Just then, the first of their bombs went off. More and more explosions rippled through the base, yet the Germans didn't seem to realise that they were under ground attack. They must have thought the explosions were time-delayed ordnance dropped by the Blenheim bomber, which were finally going off. So as unbelievably as they entered the base, they exited in even more improbable circumstances, surrounded by panicking Germans. The six men nonchalantly walked out of the front gates, still lobbing Lewis bombs into targets of opportunity as they went. Once they were free, however, the race was on. The time was now 2.30am in the morning. In just over an hour, they had destroyed 19 Junkers 88, a single Dornier 17, a Schmidt 109, a single-engine Storch reconnaissance plane, four trucks and a petrol dump. As they made their way back, explosion after explosion was heard. The men were overjoyed, but Berger knew they weren't out of trouble yet. Quickly gathering their possessions, the men headed out into the night. They had to get back to the coast, contact an SOE agent who would in turn take them to a boat which was hopefully waiting for them just off the coast. The extraction point was nearly 40 miles to the south and reaching there would not be easy. As soon as daylight hit, the Germans were sure to be aware that there were commandos on the island and the hunt would be on. The men made slow progress. Moving only at night and hampered by Berger's terrible map reading, they crept their way across the island, trying to avoid locals as much as possible. When you are operating behind enemy lines and you've finished a task and you're on your way out and you know that you're being followed up, it, it is petrifying. I've been on the ground having been involved in quite a high profile operation and we've been surrounded by approximately a two to three hundred enemy and it was petrifying. Your mouth goes dry, your legs ache, you know, you're trying to move at speed and your legs are killing you. You can feel your eyes are so wide that they're almost going to pop out of your head. You're trying to see everything, you're trying to be so aware of everything around you that it actually hurts, your senses hurt you and it is, to be quite frank, it is petrifying. 
Five days later, on the 18th of June, they reached a small valley just east of a hamlet called Vasilika Agnokia. They were exhausted, starving and had totally run out of supplies. As they lay up behind a wall in a vineyard, two local Cretans had to stumble upon them. They offered to bring back some food and wine. The SAS men gladly accepted. When they returned, they were joined by another man, a short, fat Cretan. Berger was immediately suspicious of him and told the others that there was something about him he didn't like. He said he had dancing eyes and nervous, artistic hands. Costi told the men to relax. He knew the man, he said. He came from the same village. This appeased the Frenchman a little, but something still gnawed away at the SAS commander. As the food and wine was brought out, the Cretan declined to eat with the men, instead making his excuses, saying he had to get back. As the men ate with the other two locals, they learnt some terrible news. The day after the raid, the Germans had executed 50 civilians from the small port town of Chania in retaliation. Why they had chosen this place to exact their revenge, no one knew. Maybe they thought it was to be the place the SAS were to escape from and that the locals had conspired to assist them. Whatever the reason, the men felt sick to their stomach. They had to get off the island before they caused any more harm to the local population. As day broke on the 19th, the men slept, taking it in turns to take watch. Berger asked Jellico and Costi to push on and make contact with the SOE operative called Miro Yanis, who was to organise their escape off the island. This meant moving in daylight, but they felt they had no option. Setting off, the pair moved as fast as they could in the burning sun. Costi's feet were in tatters. His civilian shoes were not as tough as the army-issued boots of the others. But back at camp, things had taken a turn for the worst. Just as the Frenchmen were about to change watch, Berger spotted some Germans. They had clearly been betrayed. Waking the others, Berger counted the enemy soldiers. It looked like there were about 50 men beginning to surround their position. He had a choice, stay and fight or try and invade them by leaving immediately. He chose to fight, hoping that perhaps they could hold off the Germans till darkness when they could try and escape. But that was nearly three hours away. Like a scene from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the men, totally surrounded, cocked their weapons and began to ready themselves for their last stand. Meanwhile, down at the coast, Jellico and Lieutenant Petrakas had made contact with the SOE agent Miro Yanis. Costi was exhausted and literally couldn't walk another step. After a night's rest and with the British forces contacted by coded transmission, Jellico decided to go back to collect the others alone, leaving the hobbled Greek lieutenant with the agent. When the SAS captain arrived back at where he left Berger and the team the previous day, 
There was no sign of them. At first, he thought he must have traveled up the wrong valley. But then, a group of young boys came running up to him. They explained through hand signals and noises that there had been a big gunfight. Looking around, Jellico saw the evidence. Shell casings and even more ominously, blood on the ground. I've been in situations where an operation hasn't gone quite according to plan and teams are split and the confusion that comes with being a split, what we call a split call sign, is sometimes it's quite difficult to take in. Jellicoe must have felt terrible. I can imagine the sinking feeling in the pit of his stomach as he realised he was alone, but not only that, his friends were either dead or captured by the SS. 20 miles away, bouncing down the unfinished roads of Crete, drove a convoy of German trucks. Inside were two companies of soldiers and the captured French SAS men. After quite a gunfight, the Germans had overwhelmed Berger and his men. Sadly, and much to the sorrow of the Major, Leostic the Kid had been killed, shot as he tried to make a break to the south. Seabald too had been wounded and had almost escaped. However, a German soldier managed to corner him. Both Berger and Mahou held out the longest, but inevitably ran out of ammunition. So we're also captured. As they were being loaded into the truck, Berger looked over and glimpsed the same rotund Cretan they had met the previous evening, talking to the Germans. It was clear he was the Quisling that had betrayed them. Luckily for the SAS soldiers, they ended up with the Luftwaffe garrison back at the Heraklion airbase a far better outcome than being handed over to the Gestapo. They gave up nothing under questioning, despite being threatened with a firing squad. After interrogation, the three Frenchmen were eventually shipped off the island to prisoner war camps in mainland Europe. Berger being taken to the infamous Kolditz. Mahou and Sebar both managed to escape the following year, in 1943. But unfortunately for Seabar, his escape was so incredible that the British thought he must have been a German plant and incarcerated him for the rest of the war. A truly dark blot on the British intelligence services. On the 24th of June, two weeks after first landing, Jellico and Costi both emerged from hiding and managed to make it to a British motor torpedo boat called Porcupine which took them back to safety. Operation Albumen was largely considered a success. The raids at Heraklion and Castelli destroyed over 30 planes, 10 trucks, several fuel dumps, and killed over a dozen Germans. The other two assaults at Timpaki and Malin weren't quite as successful. The SBS team found the intelligence to be bad about Tim Packy, and when they arrived, it was empty. It was the opposite at Moline, which was so heavily guarded with electrified fences and guard dogs that it was impossible to get in. The commander of the raid, Captain Keeley, said, the place sounded like Crufts on show day. 
Most importantly, however, the destruction of the planes, coupled with the raids that Sterling was doing on the airfields in Libya, meant that a few vital ships managed to get through to Malta so they could continue their resistance against the Germans. A final word from Jason. It's always difficult to immediately assess the success of Special Forces operations. If you think about it, the enemy are petrified of them. They don't know when they're coming, but they know it hurts. And then when it does happen, they don't want that sort of thing to happen again. So they move their pieces of the puzzle. They move their reserve forces into positions that they wouldn't necessarily want them to be in. So actually, the impact of these raids were very significant and far-reaching. It came at a high price for the Cretans, however. Prior to the attack on the 3rd of June, the Nazis executed 12 Heraklion citizens. After the raid, another 50 were executed in retribution. In modern Heraklion, there is a street named after them, the Avenue of the 62 Martyrs. Andrew Wallace, the curator of the Guards Museum, told how George Jellicoe was recognised by the British people. Jellicoe received a DSO for his actions on that mission, an award just short of the Victoria Cross. The Guards became synonymous with the early Special Forces and many members being drawn from these regiments, the five regiments of Foot Guards, something that still happens to this day. In fact, the SAS is an entire squadron named after the Guards, G Squadron. Jellicoe was also unique, however, because not only was he a Guardsman and an SAS soldier, but he also became the commander of the SBS. He became first Sea Lord, which I think would have made his father extremely proud, leader of the House of Lords, and also Britain's oldest parliamentarian of his age. Of course I'm biased. For me, the Guards have always represented everything that is truly great about the British Army. And I would encourage as many people as possible to come and visit our museum and to find out more about the many actions they have been involved in around the world. To find out how to visit their museum at Wellington Barracks in London, or any of the other Guards Museums around the country, you can find the details on our website, amazingwarstories.com. But there is one other Jellicoe that appears in this story that we need to wrap up. Christopher Jellicoe. The commander of HMS Jackal did in fact make it back to Alexandria, but sadly his ship didn't, and neither did nine of his men. However, Christopher Jellicoe had a distinguished career, being awarded in September 1942 a DSO for protecting an important convoy to Malta against an overwhelming enemy. He ended up as a rear admiral and was knighted in 1955. For more information on the other incredible Jellicoe, George, then I can highly recommend his new biography, written by one of the men that knew him best, his son, Nicholas. Another fantastic book about the history of the SAS is Ben McIntyre's Rogue Heroes. Notes on where to find these are on our website, amazingwarstories.com. Whilst you're at our website, please do consider backing this venture with a subscription if you can afford it. We don't charge the museums for raising their profiles, so we rely entirely on your generosity 
to keep our mission going. Also, don't forget to visit our shop. Everything you spend helps us continue to publicise military museums. There are some lovely items in there which would make wonderful gifts and it's all for a good cause. I really want to help these vital institutions in these difficult times. They've taken a financial battering and I'm worried that if we're not careful, the important stories they hold will become locked away from the public forever. So please do spread the word of what we're trying to do here. And if you can, please take the time to rate this podcast as it helps to be discovered by new listeners. One final thing, a word of thanks to the people, museums and organisations who free of charge gave up their time to help me tell this story. This episode of Amazing War Stories was researched, written and produced by Ed Sayer. The associate producer is Lois Crompton. Sound design and 3D mastering is by Vaudeville Sound and the music is by Extreme Music.